Today we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to focus on verses 7 through 11, 7 through 11. And every once in a while you will hear or have heard of some wacky religious group that says, the end is coming on this day, right? And so they have the date and they lay it out. And I, I went through and looked at some of the major dates through church history to see when this has happened. And uh, it, it's been phenomenal how convincing sometimes some of these arguments are. If you have some time, I would, uh, I would, I would tell you to look up the history of what's called the Great Disappointment. The, the great disappointment and the, uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s were, were times full of Jesus is coming back on this day. And even today with us now, there are many cults that were founded because of those predictions and those times and those, those different things. Uh, some of the, the more famous ones in, in 1988, Thousands of pastors received in the mail a booklet called The 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Many of those same pastors received another booklet in 1989 (laughs) saying we were off by a year. And obviously we realized that it wasn't 1988, it wasn't 1989. Perhaps the name Harold Camping is familiar to you. He is one of the most recent, um, one of these who uh, tries to sit down with the Bible and a calculator and and drum up and and figure out the exact day that Jesus is coming back. And and Mr. Camping, on many times through his life, um, very convincingly led many people to believe that, that Jesus was was coming back and the exact day and and his followers were were selling all they had they were liquidating all of their stuff um, to support the ministry and to support what was going to happen uh, interestingly enough Mr. Camping who recently passed before he passed made a major apology to Christianity he came after being embarrassed multiple times and repented of trying to figure out the very thing that Jesus says we won't know. And uh, it was very sincere and it was very uh, humbling to, to see what had happened. But I'm afraid in the year 2019 going into 2020, the idea of Jesus coming back is not something that we have over expectations of right now. It's something that we have forgotten about. Those from a generations before that, that might have put way too much emphasis on eschatological, it's a fancy word for end times, eschatological things have produced a generation that no longer thinks about them. How sad is it When we're told throughout the pages of Scripture that as we look to the world and we see sin, as we look to the world and we see suffering, as we look to the world and we see that things are not like what Jesus said are going to happen, that we should have a hope, we should have a firmness, we should have a a, a solid foundation that one day the judge will come. One day all wrongs will be made right. One day Jesus will fully redeem us and this creation. Amen? And so, 
This hope is not something just for a a bygone era. This hope is something that we should live with every day. This hope is as we watch the news, as we read the paper, as we get disgusted with the changes in the culture, as we look and we see sin exalted and, and godliness mocked. What's the answer? The answer is to hope for that day. To hope for that day. And it's with that that we look to our text today. That Peter, in the midst of speaking to a people who are undergoing severe persecution and suffering, writes to them about this hope. About the, the end that's to come. But, but not to look at it from a passive thing. But that the more that we see the pressures of the world and the pressures of sin and the pressures of Satan and the pressures of ungodliness pressing on God's people, pressing against us, making advances within our culture, it shouldn't drive us to retreat. It should drive us to faithfulness. It should drive us to action. Because we know the end of the story. We know the end of the book. Jesus comes back. Jesus heals. Jesus conquers. King Jesus will rule and will reign. Amen? And so this is a hope that we have to be careful of. There are those that have focused on this so much and have created doctrines and teachings and and exactness that there's supposed to be a mystery to it our own baptist faith and message the statement of our church is very broad in in how we define this if you're a bible believing christian and you look to the word of god and and you read and you see the hope and you believe that jesus is coming back you're good how we want to parse it out, how we want to look at it, how we want to see the exact things. Godly men and women for centuries have differed on those things. It's okay to be convicted in those areas, but it's okay to differ in those things. They're secondary issues. The primary issue is, do we have the hope? Are we looking forward to the day? Are are we doing now knowing that that day will come and it will come, as Jesus says, like a thief in the night? The idea of that is you don't know when it's coming. With that in mind, I want us to look to 1 Peter chapter 4. Here, again, Peter writes to those in the midst of suffering. And he brings the question in light of God's imminent return, the return of Christ, the consummation of all things promised. He he brings to that the question that we should have as we think about last things. The question is, so what? So what? Not when, not if, but so what? What should this matter to our life? And it matters a lot. It should be the motivation for how we think, for how we pray, for how we love, for how we serve. Jesus is coming back. The end is near. Put your hand to the plow and be a workman for God. Look with me. 1 Peter chapter 4, 
And again, our verses today that we'll focus on are verses 7 through 11. This is God's word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. As we look to this verse, the first thing that Peter sets out for us is our motivation. Our motivation. What should be the believer's motivation? What should be the Christian's motivation? What is it that we should wake up and that we should live for? Well, if we've come to know Jesus Christ genuinely in saving faith, our motivation should be His glory. It should be to make Him known, to live in the light of Christ's coming, to know that that one day He's coming back and our job until He's come back has been to, to glorify Him. And again, we look at this text, it begins and it says the end of all things is at hand and scoffers will scoff at that. They'll look and say that was 2,000 years ago. How could you believe that that this is true? The end is at hand. They were ready for it back then. You're ready for it now. When is it going to come? Well, my friend, if you would continue to read through Peter's account, you would come to 2 Peter. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, the answers to such questions are found. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says some of these things that we're familiar with. One... It reminds us that God exists outside of time that He created for us to live in. And so there is within this, uh, this, uh, this simple phrase that Peter gives, this, this truth that we must remember. A day into the Lord is like what? A thousand years. God is timeless. His plan will come. His time will come. The, the day has been appointed. Jesus tells us that. Our job is not to try to figure out the day. I love in Acts when Jesus comes to his uh, apostles and, and, and before he ascends into heaven and he, and he tells them to go and wait and they're asking him, well, well when are you going to come? When's it going to be? And he says, the time and the date is not for you to know, but only for the Father. And then Jesus ascends into heaven and, and I love this. Do you remember this story? Somebody walks by and looks at the apostles and goes, why are you all staring up? So, so they're just like frozen going, what happened? He said, why do you stare? He said he'll be back. The point in the idea is there's work to do. Don't stand and look up at the sky. Don't be uh, reading through your Bible only to find out dates that you'll never be able to calculate. 
There's work to be done. As we think about the fact that the end is near, it should cause us to move forward. To seek to glorify God. To do the things that He has called us to do. That's what our text here is about. Second Peter says a, a thousand years is like a day into the Lord. Second Peter goes on in chapter three and it talks about this. It talks about that, that God is being patient in his return. That we might come to him. Oh, he could have come back that day. He could come back today. He could come back tomorrow. He can come back at any time. We won't know. But the point that Peter makes is that until he comes back, we don't ask, why has it been so long? Are you ever going to come? We realize God's love and his mercy. He's being patient that we who know the gospel might take the gospel as Jesus commanded and share it with others. And that others, through this time of waiting, might come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Oh, he's coming back. He's coming back. But as much as we look forward to the day that Jesus returns, and, and that is in mind here as it says uh, that, that the end is near, we have to realize that even if it means that it's another thousand years, another century might come, the end is near for each of us. We're not guaranteed any days. I looked it up, and as of today, I have lived 14,662 days. Or 351,888 hours. Yet I have no promise for the next moment. That's the, the truth of the reality, isn't it? We live as though we have an infinite number of days... But in truth, we know the end is near. The end could be at any moment, at any time, whether in your youth or whether at the twilight of your life. Every day is a gift from the Lord. Every moment is a gift from the Lord. The end is near for all of us. The end could be at any moment, at any second. Are we living our lives in light of the fact that the end is near. What if tomorrow was your last day? You see, this is the motivation that Peter gives. This is the motivation that Jesus gives. Jesus in Matthew 24 says, the Son of Man is coming an hour you do not expect. Peter says the end is near. In light of all the, the pressing things around in the world, this truth is not a truth just of abstract theology for debate of scholars. This truth is the hope and the motivation for every believer and follower of Jesus Christ. God has called you into His glorious light through the gospel. God has gifted you with a spiritual gift to serve His body. Jesus is not here to physically serve. We as the church, we as those who make up the church, are the hands and feet of Christ to, to take the gospel message and the gospel love across the street and across the world. Why? Because at any moment, 
he could come back. Could you imagine what would happen if Jesus said, all right, so here's the deal, guys. Um, 2024, September, eh, I won't give you the day though, right? What would we do? <laughs> That's right. We would, we would live life without regard for Christ's return until maybe August of 2024, and then we'd get serious. The point is, is we've been called into this glorious gospel, and our mission then is to glorify God. That's the second point. Our mission, our mission is to glorify God. The, the church, the, the believers, the individuals, everyone who's been called into the glorious gospel, who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who's realized the, the forgiveness and the suffering of Christ on their behalf, that they might be forgiven and that they might be restored to God. Our life then, our motivation is not to live for ourselves, but to live for Him. Amen? And so this is the, the thrust of this text, is that we are to live to glorify God. Look at verse 11. It, it, it wraps it up. It says, so that in all things, so do these things, do, 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 we'll look at those, so that in all things God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. Is that your goal in life? If someone were to ask you, what is your goal in life? Would it include to glorify God through Jesus Christ and how I live for Him. I would hope that it would if you are a believer, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. I would hope that the idea of God's glory resonating through you, that He might be glorified, would be part of what defines you. That's a big word, isn't it? To glorify. It's one of those words that we throw around a lot that sometimes we don't know what it means. The idea of, of glory in the Old Testament meant like a, a weight or a, or a heaviness. In the, in the New Testament, it means to, uh, to seem or to th- it has to do with honor and, and reputation. And so I want to give you two illustrations that I've heard, they're not original to me, but two illustrations of, of one of God's glory and one what it means to glorify God. The first is, what is God's glory? And so imagine, I should have brought an object lesson. Imagine that I had a basketball, okay? And, and, and I wanted to talk about the basketball. And I begin to talk about the basketball by the cover, by the bladder inside, by this round object that's in this certain circumference. It bounces. It has a valve in it. If I gave you enough clues, eventually you'd go, oh, a basketball, right? When we talk about the glory of God, what we're doing is we are surmising all of the attributes and the wonderfulness and the uniqueness and the holiness of God. We could sit and we could say God is eternal. God is omnipotent. God is all-knowing. God is, is, is outside of time. God is, is, is everywhere at all times. He's without boundaries. We, we could talk about all these wonderful attributes of God, right? And they're, and they are, and they're good. Or we could say, He's glorious. You see? When we say God is glorious, we're, we're surmising all of the attributes, all of the things that we know about Him. Uh, so how do we glorify God? 
right? This tells us that we're to glorify God. And all that we do, we're, we're to glorify God. Uh, think about a, a, a photographer of nature. And, and you go and you see uh, just a stunning photo of a landscape. Your, your first thought is not to think of the photographer. Your first thought is to look at the landscape and go, wow, look at that. That's incredible. Now, when you stop to think about it, you might think the, the photographer did such an amazing job to frame that. But the goal of the photographer is not to lift themselves up. It's, it's to bring to you the image that you might delight in the image. Friends, our job to glorify God is that we might do the things that he's called us to do in a way, and to live in such a way, to serve in such a way, to pray in such a way, to love in such a way that the world would look and say, God is glorious. That's what it means to glorify God. And that's our motivation the writer gives uh, uh, Paul, uh, Peter. This is what happens when I preach all over the Bible. I forget where, who wrote what. Peter talks about this, that we should in all things glorify God. And then he gives a few particulars. I, I want us to focus on these three particulars that he gives that, that in our motivation of how we glorify God. And the first thing is that we glorify God through serious prayer through serious prayer. Uh, Look at your text. It says, self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, prayer glorifies God because by its very nature to be prayerful means that we are to be dependent on Him. By its very nature of what it means to go to God in prayer, it means I am at my end. I recognize things that I cannot do. I need your strength. I need your help. I need your power. I need you. So let's flip it. What does prayerlessness mean? It means I got this. I don't, I don't need your power. I don't need your strength. I don't need your wisdom. I don't need your guidance. I got this. It's kind of harsh when we think about it like that, isn't it? Prayer glorifies God. We are called to be a people of prayer. And I have to admit to you, this is an area that convicts me as much as it convicts you. In our modern day with all of our resources and information and, and everything just crammed at us all the time, we are physiologically being programmed not to pray. Do you realize that? A recent study came out that said that the average American's attention span is now less than that of a goldfish. We have examples of Jesus. He would get away early and for long hours he would pray. He would pray through the night. He would pray with fervent intensity. He would command his disciples to pray. He would rebuke his disciples to pray when they couldn't even stay up for an hour. I'm like, an hour? Jesus would be after me after five minutes. Is prayer a mark in your life? You know, I I have to tell you, I... This 
as I was preparing for this and thinking about this, it just hit me. This whole text is going to be about service and the body. And and Paul talks about it in this illustration. We're familiar with it in Corinthians when he says, you're a body and individual members of it. And God has gifted each one of you as a part of the body. And so you're a whole body. And that's why we call the church the church body. Because we're a body. We're a, a member together to glorify God and to serve him. And God has called you here and he's gifted you and he's placed you here. And as I was thinking about prayer, it just hit me. The major gap that losing Miss Virginia has been this year. Every one of us that knew her was always challenged by her prayerfulness. A prayer warrior. What an amazing thing, isn't it? A prayer warrior, one who, who would pray about all things, who, who always said, I was praying, and, and she did pray. I was given a gift by her daughter at 94, probably, was, was when she was last here and, and sharp towards the end. At 94 years old, her daughter gave me a, a notebook that Miss Virginia would take the sermon notes. This was before I spoon-fed them to you. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. But she would write down pages every sermon. And then at the end, she wrote down, this is what I have to do. And she would talk about what she needs to pray for and how she could serve. Isn't that amazing? At 94, I've been criticized recently that I expect too much of elderly people in the church. And I don't know if that's true. I've been thoughtful for it. I, I, think, I think the New Testament challenges all of us in faith, no matter what stage we are in life. The Bible doesn't have a theology of retirement. Roles change. Abilities change. Your, your gifts and how you can serve change. You, you often, throughout age, change from being a doer to a supporter. But all are necessary for the body of Christ. And, and if we think that we hit a point in time where all I have to do is just sit and do nothing and can't be convicted and don't really need to serve and don't really need to be a part of the body, then we need to change the name of the church from First Baptist Church of Titusville to Heaven's Waiting Room. This challenge is for all of us. In fact, we could read this and say, as you see the end of your life growing closer, as you see that the end is near, whether it's Christ's return or your death from natural age and natural causes, the, the further we should get in life, the more we should seek to do these things to glorify Christ, the more we should realize, I have less time to make Jesus known. So I need to pray harder. I need to pray harder. He, he describes this prayer with, with, um, with two qualities. First is to be self-controlled or, or to be of, of sound judgment, to be clear-headed, to be serious. These are all words that are translated to mean this. Knowing that, that we're at the end, knowing that the time is, is short, knowing that Jesus could return at any time, we should be serious about our prayers. We should be serious not only in our frequency, but we should be serious in the things that we bring before God. 
Could you imagine if we lived this, how many silly prayers we're told in Christianity, how many silly books about prayer in Christianity would be done away with? Jesus, increase my land, make me rich. You're not worried about that if the end is near. Do you get that? Be serious. It is serious work. The second, he says, is to be sober. This is a a quality that's given for elders. And and literally, it means don't be drunk. But I think Peter intends for it um, differently than than don't be intoxicated. I think what Peter is saying is is we need to be self Uh, We need to be alert. We need to be self-controlled. We need to be alert. We need to to look around. We need to look around at at the culture and the world. We need to look around at at sin that's all around. We need to look around at the the things that are being approved in government, the things that are being approved in the culture, the things that are being lifted up, the things that are being taught to our young people, the the, the things that that are all before us and have become so part of our culture, we're not sober about it. It doesn't even shock us. Do you get that? Like occasionally we get riled up, but what's the answer? Prayer. Prayer. Man, I lots of y'all are my friends on Facebook. Are we praying as much as we're getting riled up and sharing our opinions? Be sober. As you look and you see evil, what's the answer? It's not a debate with a stranger. Uh, my, my Bible class this Wednesday, we talked about silly debates in the church and people getting into some particular silly debates. And I gave a, a very good word of advice of how you answer such a thing. How do you answer it? Come on. One of you's got to do it. Lydia, how do you bless it? How do you, how do you, how do, bless your heart. That's right. That's what living in the South has taught me. Bless your heart. At first, I didn't realize what that meant. <laughs> and I heard it a lot. <laughs> well, we should be sober to the world around us. And sober means that we should be aware. We should be awakened when we see the evil, when we see the bondage, when we see people that are so trapped in sin and addictions. We should be moved to prayer, shouldn't we? We glorify God through serious prayer. We also glorify God through sacrificial love. Through sacrificial love. Look at verse 8. It says, Above all, loving one another earnestly, sincere, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And when it says above all here, it doesn't say you get to choose whether you, you love or you pray. It's saying this is one of the premier attributes of a believer in Jesus Christ. And, and this is consistent throughout the Bible. And in John, Jesus says that love for one another is the new commandment. It's the mark by which the world would know us. Paul told the Corinthians that he could have all of the spiritual gifts, but if he didn't have love, it would be nothing but noise. 
And then there's a few ways that this love is to be acted out as we're to glorify God through our love. First is, is we're to love sincerely. Keep earnestly loving or fervent. I like the, I like the, 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 the translation of fervent is closer to what the, the, the Greek actually is here. Love fervently. And that, that word fervent is a word that, that described runners in a race, right? If you ever watch a, a race and you watch the runners and you, you see them running and they get to the finish line, what do they do? They stretch as far as they can to try to get across the line. And that stretching at the end of the race, that, that stretchingness, that's the idea of what this fervent love is supposed to be. That, that we're not just to be uh, loving when it's convenient. But love means that we strain or we stretch. We should be seeking to love each other sincerely, deeply. Whatever it takes. That's what love is. Our culture is so twisted and messed up. And, and part of it's our language. We just don't have enough words for love in English. I use the same word to talk about my wife as I do ribs. And I do love ribs. But baby, it's a different kind of love. Right? Love fervently. Love fervently. We think that love is just warm and fuzzy and the benefits we get. And, and, and genuine love does emotionally affect us in wonderful ways. But what this word means and the fact that love can be commanded means that love is often more sweat than sweet. Did you catch that? Love is more often sweat than sweet. It involves effort. Are we loving each other with effort? It means it's not easy. You've got to work at it. Love sacrificially. Look at the next phrase. It highlights this again. It says, love covers a multitude of sins. It's easy to love those who don't sin against you. Is it easy to love those who sin against you? No. No. But biblical love extends to those even when they wrong you. We, we know this comes from Proverbs where it contrasts love with hatred. And really, that's your, that's your two options is, is you can love and cover sins or you can become bitter and allow it to eat you up. Now, sometimes the Bible is clear that, that sin needs to be addressed. And in doing so, there are ways that, that, that sin being addressed is covering it. Does that make sense? rather than ignoring it or festering on it. So, so how do we know? How do we know when we just need to let something go and, and when we need to uh, confront it? I, I would give you, I, I, would, I would take from 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes this, he says, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Is this an, is this an issue of immaturity or defiance? Those that are defiantly in sin, it should be addressed. 
The Bible gives us ways in which to go about that. First, you go to your brother. Hopefully that would take care of it. If not, then, then the Bible gives us steps through Matthew 18. But, but often others are discouraged or weak. They don't know and they, they sin often out of ignorance against us. Not knowingly, not defiantly. How often is it that we get worked up over just a word that somebody said that unintended? I have to tell you, most of the trouble that I get into as your pastor with other people has to do with humor. (laughs) I say something that I thought was funny and the other person didn't think so. (laughs) Hopefully the individual can come to me and say, that hurt. And I can say, I really didn't mean that. covers sins love with great effort love with great effort for others Uh, look at this it says it goes on and it and it says the point here is that some people are hard to love amen all right that should have been a louder amen okay it says if you look on in verse 9 it says to do it without grumbling (laughs) why would we grumble because it can be difficult. And it talks about the idea of hospitality here. And the idea of hospitality and not grumbling means because we can we can love someone and be kind to them, but under our breath go, I'm a Wilson. It's a trait. Uh, meet any Wilson from my family. It's right. See, um, we are great grumblers. But the idea here is that we would love genuinely. And that's the idea of hospitality. In that day and age, there wasn't a lot of hotels. There wasn't a lot of motels. You you traveled somewhere and, and Christians were traveling throughout the communities. And the idea was to welcome them, to welcome strangers in your house because they're believers in Christ. Could you imagine such a day? That shows love though, doesn't it? That we would love in such a way. The last thing that's mentioned here is service. We glorify God through, I'm going to call it steadfast service, by continuing in serving. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There are few areas that can often cause more confusion and disagreement than talking about spiritual gifts. I'm not going to get into all of that today, but I want to say this. The New Testament is very clear that every believer, every person who's been born again, regenerated by God, who's come to faith in Jesus Christ, has been given the Spirit of God, and along with the Spirit of God, has been given a spiritual gift by which to serve God and the church. That's a fact. No matter whose survey you take on the matter, that is the fact. And this verse gives us five truths about this. First, every Christian has a spiritual gift. There's no one that can say, I don't have one. Now you might say, I'm not sure what it is. But you can't say, I don't have one. Second, your gift might be different than someone else's. There are different gifts. Because if we all had the same gift, what fun would that be? 
Third, whatever gift you have, you should use it. It says you're a steward, right? We know what steward means. You've been given something by someone else to take care of, to use correctly. The parable of the talents comes into mind here. You're a steward. You're a steward of God's gifts by His varied grace. The fact that God has shown grace to you in giving you a gift, then you are are given that gift not to hold on to it, but that you might use it within the body and amongst others. We're all called to serve. It's in different ways, but we're all called to serve. And, And that goes to the fourth point. Some gifts are noticeable and some gifts are unnoticeable. He, he gives two examples here. First, he gives the example of those who are, are called to, to speak. Go, those who are called to teach. The, the gift of gab. And notice what he says to it here because the seriousness is amazing. He says, you are to, to, to speak as though you were speaking the oracles of God. That doesn't mean that you're to get up and you're to, to prophesy new things. It means you are to handle seriously the word of God. And the second gifts that he gives are those of service that we would serve one another. Those behind-the-scene gifts. Those gifts that are, are needed to expand the kingdom, to encourage believers. There's, there's things even just within this body, within this facility, within our ministry here that have to be served. And God's called all of us as one body that we might serve the ministry that He has here for us. Remember, our motive, our service, it ends with this, is to give God glory. Sometimes we want to serve for our own glory, but that's not the point. We're to serve God that He might be glorified in what He's given us to serve Him. So, would you be ready if today was your last day? I don't want to be morbid, but it could be. Jesus could return. We're not promised another moment. And some of you are not ready. Some of you keep saying tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. You know the gospel. You know the message of Jesus Christ. You know that forgiveness is available because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And you keep saying, tomorrow, tomorrow I'll take care of it. Let me, let me live for today one more day. I'm afraid of what others might think. I don't want to, to commit and do what that would take. Friends, there will be a day that tomorrow never comes. Reminds me of a passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul writes and says, we're working together with Him and we appeal to you to receive the grace of God. In a favorable time, I've listened to you. In the day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Friends, don't put off what God is calling you to do today until tomorrow. You may not have tomorrow.